Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It remains December the 20th, 2021. Last hour, we were in Vienna talking to the professor of sociology at the Central European University, Dorit Gever, about new authoritarianism in, um, in, uh, in Europe. Um, Vienna, of course, is traditionally associated as the home of psychoanalysis. So we were talking about 20th, 21st century politics. Uh, this hour, we are talking psychoanalysis, but not in Vienna. Uh, rather than Vienna, we are going to Nashville, of all places, um, to talk to my guest today, who is not only a poet, but an authority on um, psychoanalysis. Her name is Kate Daniels. She's the author of a, a new book called Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of poetry and psychoanalysis, bringing these two P words together. And I'm thrilled that she, as I said, is joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Kate, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello from Nashville. So uh, is Nashville the new home of psychoanalysis? Have you replaced Vienna? Absolutely not. So there's not there's not a huge circle of psychoanalysis psychoanalysts here or people particularly interested in clinical psychoanalysis. I teach at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville. So there's a whole, you know, sort of cadre of colleagues who are interested in theoretical applications of psychoanalytic theory. Um, but the, you'd have to go to Chicago to get to the closest center of psychoanalytic real energy and excitement traveling from Nashville. Chicago, to some extent, St. Louis, Washington, that, but not, not Nashville so much. Uh, Kate, um, your book, as I said, brings together your, your new collection of, uh, well, I, I don't think it's a collection of poetry, but it's a memoir, Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of poetry and psychoanalysis. These two P words don't normally coexist uh, in a book or, or, in, um, or in a life. How, how did you bring these together? What came first, the poetry or the interest in poetry or the interest in psychoanalysis? Well, the interest in poetry, and also I should add a disclaimer. You said at the beginning something about that, you know, I was an expert on psychoanalysis. I'm not. Um, I, I know way more about poetry than I do about analysis. I know. Well, maybe okay, don't, don't, um, don't underplay yourself, um, and, and you don't want to tell people you're not an expert because they're all going to switch off now. <laughs> aren't, so, aren't psych I mean, Freud wasn't an expert on psychoanalysis either. He invented it so he could he can proclaim himself the the expert at any rate poetry came first I mean I've, I've you know been interested in poetry one of those sort of geeks who started writing poetry as a little child and never stopped it's been my life's profession teaching poetry teaching poetry is literature teaching people to write it I come from a background that normally no one would associate or few people would associate with psychoanalysis, with clinical analysis. I grew up in, in the white working class in the South, um, uh, you know, a baby boomer, in an, in an environment or milieu where any form of psychotherapy was seen as a kind of admission of personal weakness, as something frivolous. So it was quite a surprise to me to find um, in later years that my interest in psychoanalysis began to develop to the extent that it did. 
um, so that it became a real fascination with me. Um, I um, incorporated into my teaching and um, ultimately uh, in sort of mid, in my late 40s, um, finding that um, I was having a lot of personal issues that were felt pretty intractable with regard to the ability of regular psychotherapy to address them, um, I explored the possibility of old-timey uh, clinical psychoanalysis, lie down on a couch four days a week with an analyst who's very taciturn, shall we say, and withholding, and see if I could arrive at some kind of insight, which is what psychoanalysis does. One of the first things to directly answer your question then, that's the background to it, one of the first things that happened as I submitted myself to this admittedly very strange sort of process, locking yourself up in an office four days a week with another person and just talking off the top of your head, one of the first things that happened was I began to um, notice that the, what shall we say, the psychic sort of state that I entered into when I was doing this felt very similar to the way that I felt when I was writing poems, um, something that I'd been doing actually since I was five years old. And, you know, as, as a poet and also as a literature professor, I was very used to examining, listening to my own utterance, listening to the utterances of others, um, analyzing texts of various kinds or another. And so I, it was almost like I was on two tracks. I was doing the analysis, but there was this other part of me that was um, taking advantage of the sort of technical skills that I had accrued over the years as a, as a poet and as a literature professor um, and, and working on the, the process of clinical analysis. So I took copious notes and ultimately ended up writing this book. Uh, some of your critics, and they're, they're generally very positive, have described your work as erotic. There's a certain intimacy to your work. Um, is that intimacy... Uh, is the intimacy of poetry and the intimacy of psychoanalysis, are you suggesting that they're essentially the same things? I think that there are deep connections between them. They're both um, endeavors that are very um, language-based. Um, people who um, are not comfortable with using language um, typically are not going to make much progress in psychoanalysis. They can but you have to talk. I mean, you know, that's Freud called it the talking cure, right? You have to talk. You have to be interested. Like we're doing now. Is like this psychoanalysis? No, this is not psychoanalysis. Too many people might be watching. Even if one other person is watching, it's too many people. Can't you have family psychoanalysis? Uh, is, that a, is that a contradiction in terms? I have never heard of such a thing. I've or never group heard. psychoanalysis. So in all seriousness, Kate, what's the difference between psychoanalysis and the the kind of therapy that is increasingly taking hold of our culture. You mean regular old psychotherapy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, um, I mean, there will be lots of different opinions on this, but psychoanalysis is one-on-one. -on -one. It is one analyst and one analysand. It is extremely deep, uh, intensive, and typically lengthy therapy. It is insight-oriented. Um, so that the idea is for the, the analyst's role is to sort of try to create a situation in which the analysis and the patient can arrive at and articulate their own discoveries. 
a lot of times in psychotherapy, you have a, a therapist who might guide or lead the patient, might make suggestions actually. Why don't you try doing this? Why don't you, maybe this means this. That's not what's happening in, in the kind of psychoanalysis that I was in. And typically, again, in the kind of analysis that I was in, there, the frame um, the, is, is extremely austere and withholding. So there's not a feeling of warm relationality, at least at the beginning in analysis that can develop over time. But in regular old psychotherapy, if there is actually such a thing, warmth of feeling, a feeling of fitness and connection is typically one of the most important things that people have to think about when they decide to go into psychotherapy. Not necessarily um, the case in the kind of analysis that I underwent. That's why I call it old timey. It's a, it's a model, I think, that is increasingly um, uh, disappearing. But it, at the time I did this, it was still, it's, it still existed. Psychotherapy seems to me, and again, this is sort of throwaway remark, so please correct me if I'm totally wrong, but psychotherapy seems to me to be a search to reify the self, whereas perhaps you're suggesting with psychoanalysis um, that it's a way of chipping away at the self, of questioning the self, of wondering about the self. I'd say that what you said, your definition of psychotherapy a way of reifying the self is 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 very applicable to psychoanalysis. Um, psychotherapy seems a little bit less uh, intense to me. Um, it's more obviously supportive, or at least it can be. Psychoanalysis is is very intense. Um, it's it it not which is not to say that psychotherapy isn't, but it can be very scary. Can I read you a paragraph from the intro here that says of something? Of course, absolutely. I'd, I'd love you to read that. I'm more articulate on the page than I am talking one-on-one. -on -one. Um, okay, so this is two sort of long paragraphs. This is from the, the foreword. Anyone who has seriously pursued either poetry or psychoanalysis is well aware of how compellingly difficult each of these different endeavors is. Both disciplines require the self-willed destruction of ingrained or internalized beliefs, attitudes, habits, and ways of thinking, speaking, writing, and imagining that have become counterproductive in life or in art. While it may be fairly common to think of psychotherapy as requiring mental stoicism, it may be well less known, it may be less well known that writing poetry also requires courage. I once sat on a panel of poets with the Pulitzer Prize winner Yusef Komanyaka. In the course of discussing the use of creative writing in healthcare settings, which is something I did for years, I spoke of poetry's healing aspects. Komanyaka took the microphone to insert a tense, a terse comment. I don't know about you, Kate, he said, but I find that writing poetry is often very frightening. Of course, he was right. Rummaging about in the unconscious, which is the job of both creative writing and psychoanalysis, can be downright terrifying. More than anything else, perhaps, it requires the ability to withstand unpleasant thoughts and feelings about the world, oneself, and others. George Orwell, in his famous essay, Why I Write, described his precocious awareness that he was destined to become a writer when he recognized, at age eight, that he was unique among his acquaintances for possessing not only the requisite facility with words, but more importantly, the psychological power of facing unpleasant facts without collapsing internally. Wallace Stevens, a very different kind of writer, 
also regarded literary creativity with both respect and caution. Poetry, he warned, is a destructive force. If poetry is a destructive force, Kate, um, for the writer, what about for the reader? Well, it can be. I mean, for the. Or should it be? I mean, when you write poetry, are you trying to destroy your reader? Well, that's, I mean, it feels like a trick question. No, I'm not trying to, to destroy my reader, but I'm trying to um, create a text. Or trying to make it uh, uncomfortable, perhaps even unpleasant for your reader, rather than comforting. Certainly not necessarily trying to make anything comforting, but trying to create a textual space where whatever I am as a writer, the person who's responsible for the poem, and whatever the reader is as a person, the person who comes to the poem, can sort of meet and um, have an intense experience. Um, that's that's what I think is meant by by the poetry's destructive force, the power that it has to change people. Otherwise, why would we keep writing and reading? Why would literature keep being created? Um, you know, it's it's beyond the entertainment um, function of it. Um, we're talking about. I mean, poetry is not for it. May it may entertain, but it's not to entertain. It's a a tool of not only self-discovery and revelation, but something that can also be that for other people. It's the language of extremity. It's the language we turn to, you know, when we're in the most extreme or most emotionally intense experiences of our lives, whether they are negative experiences, like say September 11th or, or a pandemic, or whether they're um, very wonderful, joyous experiences. We turn to poetry at the birth of a child. We turn to poetry when we made up and you know have marriages and celebrations. It's the language of extremity. Kate, you talked about, um, as a poet, going to psychoanalysis and understanding that the two were similar. But are you somehow suggesting that a psychoanalyst and a poet are the same thing? Because you're not formally a psychoanalyst. You... You, you, you lay on the couch or you went into the psych psychoanalytical chamber. Yeah. Um, but, but are they in the same business, the poet and the psychoanalyst? I, I'm sure Freud wrote about this. Well, Freud, of course, was a great literature lover, particularly a lover of poetry. And, and he has a wonderful quote, uh, which is attributed to him. You know, Freud's great discovery that ultimately led to the articulation of the field of inquiry known as psych that came to be known as psychoanalysis was the discovery of the unconscious mind, that there's a part of us that is not always aware of what we're doing and saying or the significance of it. And his quote that was that I love so much was whenever he would be sort of complimented or thanked for discovering the unconscious mind, he would say, uh, the poets were there before I was. And there's some sort of idea that that his early thoughts on this sort of hidden, uh, invisible unconscious mind was very much um, aided by his love and his deep reading of Shakespeare. Um, so now I've forgotten the early part of your question. Poets and psychoanalysts share a lot of the same tools. They, they work in similar kinds of ways. Uh, but no, they're not in exactly the same business. We are talking, uh, it's a real honor, a real thrill, Kate, to, to have this kind of conversation to Kate Daniels, the author of Slow Fuse of the Possible, uh, a book about uh, both poetry and, and psychoanalysis. Um, we're going to take a brief break, Kate, and then we're going to come up with a third P word, which I want to talk to you about, which I think is also incorporated in your work. So Stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in 
90 seconds to talk more with Kate Daniels about poetry and psychoanalysis. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are talking, welcome back to Kate Daniels, the author of Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of poetry and psychoanalysis, the two P words. It's a third P word I want to throw in, um, Kate, and it's not the Freudian P word, uh, another P word, politics. Your, um, your work, I think, is quite political in its own way. You presented yourself at the beginning of uh, this conversation uh, as somebody from the white working class South. Um, you're very much, um, you're, you're, you're in your academic work and you're teaching at Vanderbilt, you're, you're connecting poetry and psychoanalysis uh, and you work with a number of medical institutes. What's the politics in your work of of both poetry and psychoanalysis? Well, I would say out of everything I've written, this this is a memoir, so it's written in prose, though I guess it's sort of, you know, very so-called poetic prose. But it's political as well, isn't it? I don't, I, well, I would be interested to have another conversation about how you see it as political. I don't see this book as political, and I don't see psychoanalysis as political, and I see that as one of the things that's very strange and otherworldly about it. Um, and I don't mean strange in a negative way. I mean, it, it is, does seem to be a kind of a neutral space um, in which two people agree to meet each other without politics, without precon. I mean, that's part of the thing to try to meet without preconceptions. One is going to talk and the other one who's, that's the, the analysis and the patient and the analyst who's been trained to listen is going to listen. But that's a funny, uh, Kate, we've had a number of shows about how to bridge the political divide. 
yeah. uh, many, many shows about the North and the South and, wh- and white Americans and black Americans and right wing and left wing Americans. And ultimately, everything comes down to the failure for one side to listen to the other. So yep. when I say politics, listening, the act of conversation is by definition political, isn't it? It, it certainly can be. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, when I was in analysis, one of the things that re- re- occurred to me repeatedly was that um, if we could put basically everyone on the planet Earth into psychoanalysis, our problems would be solved. I also thought that, you know, our problems, our problems being what our inability to talk to one another. Yeah. And our, our tendencies toward violence, our moves away from love and toward hatred and destruction of the other fear of the other. Um, you know, all of that kinds of stuff, um, that, that the space that is opened up between two people by the process of clinical psychoanalysis is one which I believe um, has the ability to um, allow people to really see each other and accept each other and to disarm themselves in certain kinds of ways. It may not work for everyone, um, but I think it, it works for many people who try it and it could work for more people. But of course, you know, it's, it's expensive. It's slow. It's not a quick, easy fix. Um, it's, it's hard for people to, it's a very middle-class endeavor. I mean, we have to admit that. Right. Um, One of, uh, it may even be the advertiser for this show. There's a, as a boom in online therapy of one kind or another, does yeah. it need to be in person? Do you think whether it's psychoanalysis or traditional therapy? Well, you know, I'm not a therapist, but as they say, I have many friends who are. One of the things I do is I teach, I've taught writing for 15 years at the Washington Baltimore Center for Psychoanalysis. So I'm I'm part of quite a lot of conversations about just this question. Um, And when when the pandemic first set in and everyone had to transition quickly to Zoom, um, therapists like everyone who was doing this were exhausted and they remain exhausted. And my sense was from the conversations I was part of it that, that at the beginning, in general, therapists thought um, this was just a kind of stopgap measure. Thank God we have it, but it's really awful. And it's, well, it's, it's the second best to what can be you know, achieved in person. But over these past two and a half years, what I am increasingly hearing is that um, virtual therapy, Zoom therapy, whatever, works for some patients for a variety of different kinds of reasons, sometimes practical reasons, you know, childcare, other times something about the, uh, you know, what has brought the patient to um, therapy in the, in the first place. So it seems to me that it's, it's an addition to the toolbox of, of uh, psychotherapy um, that, that we should welcome. So is it different? Um, I choose to do my therapist, my personal therapist, who is not an analyst, um, you know, sees patients both in person and virtually, and I choose to do it in person. Um, I, I like it better that way, but I'm a highly relational person, another kind of person, not structured with the same brain chemistry as I am, might find it much more productive to do it um, virtually. Well, okay, we've done a number of shows about race in America, the thing that seems to be more than anything else, tearing the country apart or has done since its origins. Um, can, you're talking to me from Nashville, from the South, of course. You introduced yourself, as I said earlier, as a um, as a descendant of, of, of white, working-class Southern people. How can psychoanalysis help with this terrible, tragic racial division in America? But, and, of course, the legacy of white racism. Yeah. Well, this is far too 
big a question for me to answer. I don't know. I'm as I'm as depressed and despairing as as many people are. Well, you can begin. I'm not looking for a single answer, but that... uh, I mean, we've already we've already talked about it in a way. A psychoanalysis is about two people getting together to talk and listen, and now there's just shouting and screaming and insulting, and these these kinds. You know, the thing about analysis. One of the things that's so interesting. The structure of analysis is okay. You're going to go. I went to see my analyst four times a week for 45 minutes each time, preset times. I had to be there. If I was a minute late, I was a minute late. I lost that minute. If I couldn't come, I I had to pay anyway. So you have this form. You have to insert yourself in it at exactly those times every time. If you're if you're in the middle of talking about something when the session gets to 45 minutes, tough luck. The session is over. The analyst says something like, "That's it for today. See you tomorrow." And you have to get up off the couch and go out there, all in a turmoil. You know, you have to learn to deal with yourself. It's very, very, very hard, and it's very, very, very slow. And so, how do we get to a point? So it's the opposite of social media. The speed of social media. In this world, how do we get to a point where we can achieve a state where we're listening truly, or at least trying to listen to each other, when with Twitter, you know, and and everything else that's going on? So, I don't feel hopeful about it, and um, I, I don't understand where we're going. Um, but I'm grateful that there are so many therapists and analysts who are um, dedicated and devoted, and and make these opportunities available for people who who can access them. Okay, we have the slow food movement, we have slow tech movement now, or anti slow anti tech movement, perhaps. I mean, by definition, both poetry then and psychoanalysis are slow. There's no such thing as fast poetry or fast psychoanalysis, I would assume. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there is, there is, you know, there are some Twitter poets who like to do it fast. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's a contradiction in terms. Uh, it seems to me, Kate, as if America is suffering a condition of anti, especially when it comes to race, anti-poetry in that people are using other language. Trump is a master of this, using other language to talk about stuff that everyone knows really what he's talking about. Um, Can poets and poetry help us use language to tell the truth rather than the, the dog whistle politics, particularly on the right, but perhaps on the left as well in America today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the that's one of the jobs. That's one of the social functions of poetry, right? To tell it like it is. Um, you know, although Emily Dickinson would say, "Tell all the truth, but tell it slant," because if you tell it too directly, then people, at least a lot of people, may be turned off and not able to listen to it. They won't be able to take in the the intensity or the brightness of what's said. Um, but it, but I do want to point out that um, despite what sounds like my pessimism about the sort of political situation. With regard to what you're specifically asking me about race and you know that as, as part of the content, racism as part of the content of poetry, we are in an incredible renaissance moment right now in contemporary American poetry in which there are um, extraordinarily talented and productive uh, young poets and mid-career poets who are fully embracing this aspect of conversation that we need to have. Um, in, in, Amer- in, in American society in general. In lots of ways, there's been a big part of American literature historically that has been opposed to bringing um, political 
um, utterance directly into poetry. There always have been some poets who have done it. Robert Bly, who just recently died, you know, was very much, you know, a politically outspoken poet. But in general, there's been almost this kind of sniffy attitude about bringing it in too directly. That's not the moment we're living in now. And it's a, you know, we're living in a moment which many of us feel is, is incredibly urgent for all kinds of reasons, our race situation, the climate situation, our pandemic situation. But I'm here to tell people who don't ordinarily read poetry, contemporary American poetry, this is being handled and processed and articulated in amazing ways, unforgettable ways in our poetry right now. And I'm more people, I take your point about the, the, the poetry community becoming more political, focusing on race and these other important issues. But are more people reading poetry? It's always attracted uh, quite a small audience. And I've, I've sometimes wondered whether it's you know, preaching to the choir, that the people who, who do it and the people who read poetry pretty much agree on everything in the first place. And the people who should be reading poetry or on Twitter or watching Fox News. Well, you know, one of the frustrating things about the digital world we live in is that you can sort of find different stats to support what you're saying. But my understanding from having looked at this several times is that significantly more Americans are buying. So we're going to assume they're Good. reading volumes of poetry. And then when you see the phenomenal um, success and celebration of someone like Amanda Gorman, who was there, yeah. and uh, you, you can see that more people... Do you like her? Do you think she's good? I think she's a brilliant young person. Yeah, she's very young. She'll she'll grow as a poet. But yes, of course. Well, that's Kate Daniels' way of suggesting that she has some reservations about Amanda Gorman. And I wanted to actually talk a little bit generationally, Kate. You and I have a similar age, slightly older, although hopefully not too old. Um, there seems to be a generational quality to our culture of therapy. You teach at Vanderbilt, so you spend a lot of time with younger people. I've got kids. I don't teach. Is there something going on generationally when it comes to a culture of, of, of therapy? Is, is, is a younger generation even more sort of psychologically traumatized than our generation? Or am I just imagining things as an old fart? Well, my, I mean, you, you're English, I believe, but I'm, my American generation was pretty damn traumatized by the Vietnam War, I have to say. Um, and and traumatized not everything. Not, I mean, perhaps by the Vietnam War, but not by getting up in the morning, not by switching the computer on, not by going out, which seems to be the the, the condition of this new generation, younger generation in America, who are flocking to therapy, particularly traditional therapy, but also I would guess psychotherapy. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I, perhaps we are living in a moment where an extended moment where there is a decreasing possibility for escaping even for brief periods of time from the terrible realities that you know we're facing where all of us on the planet earth are facing and that takes its toll right um that people can't survive like that um we need periods of of rest and um and reflection and that's increasingly hard to get in this world we live in, and and I yes, you're right. In the in the 70s, the 60s, um, we were not sub, sub, sunk in it um, perpetually in the way that we are now. But th but this sounds very pessimistic. Um, at, you know, as 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 the sort of stress and trauma has has built up over the decades, um, other things have built up alongside it that have are there for our assistance. 
um, you know, psychopharmacology has made extraordinary advances in terms of medications for depression and bipolar, things like that, and and therapy services, psychological services for schools. Are you worried about us drifting into a, a Huxley and Brave New World where everyone is on one kind of medication or another in Sorry. terms of cheering Sorry. them up and everyone is almost too happy? As far as I'm concerned, everyone's already on some kind of medication or other. So I don't think we're too far away from that. Um, I, I say that laughing, but um, it's, it's not particularly funny. I mean, how many people do you know who are not on some kind of medication that has, if not direct effects on their, um, you know, their neural states, then has side effects of that? Yeah, I think I'm probably the only person. And that's why everyone considers me, especially my own children, to be so weird. Well, that's another thing. I, I'm actually not on on any kind so of. So you and I are the last two people left in the world not on uh, not on medication, Kate. We're the weirdos, right? That we're the weirdos, and our our general practitioners should be very proud of us and proud of their work with us as well. <laughs> well, I've uh, I'm all in favor of uh, a new prohibition movement against alcohol. Perhaps there needs to be a new prohibition movement against psychomedication as well. Do you think? Uh, do you think there's some uh, some mileage in that, some no. potential? No, no. Mental illness is, is far too serious an illness, and there's far too much research that shows that it can be um, efficaciously addressed with um, all kinds of, of medications. You know, I'm, I'm, I had a grandmother who suffered from psychotic breaks and schizophrenia, and I have a child with bipolar. I have seen firsthand the extraordinary advances that modern medicine have made in treating people who only 120 years ago would have been chained to a wall in a in a facility, you know, and and considered incarcerated. So, you no, know, I'm I'm grateful for modern psycho psychopharmacology. Well, Kate, you seem to me a, a cheerful pessimist, and, <laughs> and and I'm assuming that your work as a poet and your experience in psychotherapy has has helped that cheerfulness, even if you don't. You're not necessarily hopeful about the future of the world. You've remained uh, cheerful. Is that fair? You, I, I'm not sure if your work is cheerful. It's profound. Um, it, it's beyond pessimism and, and, and optimism, slow fuse of the, of the possible, a memoir of poetry and psychoanalysis. Do you pride yourself on your optimism or an attempt to be optimistic? I don't pride myself. I don't. I don't think of myself as necessarily optimistic. I certainly don't think of myself as cheerful. I fight my own sort of pessimism. My work is not cheerful, but I have to admit, bizarrely, for someone who's so interested in psychoanalysis, I am a person of faith, described in the largest way possible. I believe that there's something larger than human beings, and there's some reason for being here, and we may not know it while we're here, but it's worth the struggle to try to live with appreciation and gratitude for this human life that we share and for the, the extraordinary gift of loving other human beings. That's the end, the, the end, the beginning, the end all for me is, is loving other human beings. So. And that's the gravity of your work. And uh, it's a real honor, Kate, to, to have you on the show. Slow Fuse of the Possible, a memoir of poetry and psychoanalysis uh, by Kate Daniels. I think one of America's leading, leading, uh, thinkers trying to bring these two worlds together. It's really lovely, Kate, to have you on the show. You're talking to me from Nashville, Tennessee in late 2021. In addition to your book, what else should people be reading in these strange, dark times in American history? 
Well, you asked me that question before, and the first thing that came to my mind is a little book that I keep on my reading table that I look at every morning, and it's by Thich Nhat Hanh called How to Love. And, you know, we were discussing um, in, our set, in our conversation, how do we get people to listen to each other? This little book might be one way that some people can figure out how to um, begin to approach in their everyday lives. So that's very important to me. Um, I can tell you some other books I'm reading. Do you want to hear those? I'm reading two books of poetry at present. One is by the poet Michael Collier called The Missing Mountain. And this is, I think, a selection of selected poems. And then another by a poet named Lisa Russ Spar called Madrigalia, um, also a selection of selected poems. And then because I have an ongoing, almost obsessive interest in Emily Dickinson, I tend to read um, new books as they come out. This is a fairly new one on Emily Dickinson called These Fevered Days, 10 Pivotal Moments in the Making of Emily Dickinson. But as far as addressing our present moment, how to love, how to love. That's what we need to do. We need to love. Well, you summed it up. Can't say any better than that. How to love. Kate Daniels, author of Slow Fuse of the Possible. I think you're helping us figure out how to love too in your own way. Real honor, Kate, to have you on the show. Keep well. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. I'd love to have you back on the show in 2022 to talk about ways that we can make the world a better place and help us love one another. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Andrew, so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Happy holidays.